Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show is about storytelling, and it's also about a legend in the classroom, the life story of Miss Yvonne Bush. And my guest tonight is Leonard Smith III. Leonard is a self-proclaimed technology geek, all right, Leonard, with a passion for genealogy and Stories. He has authored many articles and workshops on research techniques, storytelling, and filmmaking. And in 2008, he started LS3 Studios. This multimedia studio has produced interviews and award-winning documentary films. Now, Leonard has helped his clients unearth their family history dating back centuries. Wow, Leonard. He has over 40 years of researching his own family history, and this experience helps him to mentor others who are looking for that next step. Leonard's style of teaching is in plain everyday language for the non-technical individual. This enables students to understand and learn with ease. He loves teaching others on how to apply technology in their genealogy research and his mission, educate, entertain, and inspire others to tell their stories. Oh, I like that, Leonard. Well, some of the most recent projects include A Place Called Desire, From Shanghai to Harlem, and this was a winner of the Gold AVA Award and Bronze Telly, the 100th anniversary of St. John of Arc Catholic Church, winner of two Bronze Telly Awards, and a legend in the classroom, the life story of Miss Yvonne Bush, winner of the Ava Platinum Award, 
Hermes Gold Award and Bronze Telly Award. So let me give a warm welcome to the award-winning storyteller and filmmaker Leonard Smith III to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Leonard. Wow, Bernice, for that introduction, I need to take you on the road with me. Hey, I think, okay, I'm ready to go on the road with you. <laughs> Gee whiz, I, I just enjoy hearing all about your wonderful accomplishments and congratulations upon winning all of those wonderful awards. Well, I did say that we're going to talk about telling our stories and then get into the legend of uh, Miss Yvonne Bush. So why is it important, Leonard, to tell our stories? Well, you know, Bernice, down through the years, I realized that, you know, we interview folks or we might talk to them and we hear those great stories and we kind of just put it on the side and say, I'll get to it later. But we realize as time goes on that time is not as long as we think it is, and no one knows how long they'll be here. And so it's time for us to start telling our own stories where, you know, it's not Hollywood doing it, it's someone else doing it. It's that we're telling the stories and we've gotten this oral history or we've gotten this documentation firsthand. And it's so great when you hear and you interview the elders. I, I just enjoy interviewing elders because you never know what may come up and there's so many things that have been undiscovered because of the fact that, you know, they lived some things that others may not have known about, even in their family. So, you know, I, I just have a passion for telling our stories, and, and that's what has been driven, driving me to do all what I'm doing right now. Well, you said it's great to interview the elders. So how do you kind of get the elders to tell you stories? Well, you know, when I interview people, and, and not just the elders, but also young folks as well, but most of the elders, I just sit and have a conversation with them. You know, I, if it's first time, I don't bring a camera, I don't bring a recorder. Uh, I may have the interview with them over the phone, and we just have an everyday conversation. And when I go to interview them, then I'm, I'm prepared because I know a little bit more about their background. I know a little bit about their family. I also know about their community, what happened in their community at their, in their time frame, because that's important as well, because, you know, I've interviewed elders who were uh, around when the, the, the Depression came and also in World War I and World War II. So I always ask those questions like, well, do you remember the day that they announced that the country was at war? What were you doing? Where were you? And it's amazing the stories and recall that they have um, of these major events. So that's all part of it as well. But I also like to do the local community as well and find out what was going on. But I've done my homework before I get to them. And so I'm just listening to their part of the story because they they lived it. Yes, they lived it. And, you know, it's it's so interesting sometimes to just talk to people and to say, well, what were you told when you were growing up? Or what can you tell me about your family? And some people will say nothing. What's going on there? <laughs> right, that's right. And, you know, you have to ask open-ended questions. You can't just ask them a question where they can give you a yes or no answer. And, again, it gets back to once you, they become comfortable with your approach and you, you're sitting there and having conversations, I've had many opportunities where I say, okay, well, that's a wrap. Um, 
you have anything else? Well, look, let me tell you something else. So they go into a whole nother, and it might be a whole nother hour. Um, it's amazing. A lot of folks have a lot to say, and unless somebody asks them, they're not going to say anything. And, you know, I, I've had family members who, my cousin Isabel, I always talk about cousin Isabel because she opened up um, the whole history on my paternal side, information I never knew. I didn't even know my third great-grandfather's name. And just in conversation, she mentioned about, you know, her, her, her grandfather having a lot of land, which would have been my second great-grandfather. And when she mentioned that, and I said, well, where did he get all that land from? He said, well, I think his father, I guess. And I said, well, what's his father's name? So she gave me his father's name, and it was like, wow, I didn't know that. And, of course, I did my research. Everything Cousin Isabel told me, I was able to find. There's only one thing I'm lacking that I have not been able to trace back to, and it's something major. But everything else she has told me, I have been able to verify what she said. And she was 90, 91 years old. And I interviewed her over the course of maybe uh, probably six evenings. Wow. That's wonderful. And so many people, you're sitting there, you have elderly uh, relatives, elderly friends of the family. I think this is Mm -hmm. an opportunity that you don't want to lose. That's right. That's right. You know, some of us have been blessed to have, you know, ancestors. Well, I want to say, I want to say older relatives that were in their hundreds. I know you had that opportunity with your mom and your grandmother. And see, that is so rare. Um, And and so can you only imagine if you just go think about going back a century in time, maybe about 100 years, all that has taken place in 100 years is just mind-boggling. For them to be able to sit and tell you, you know, well, when I was a little girl, this is what we used to do. And, you know, when I you know, became a, a, a grown-up, this is what I did, and this is where I moved. And, and, and the stories, you know, you don't find that in senses. <laughs> you know, those are the great stories of world history that we have to continue telling of hearing and then on to the next generation. And that's the big piece of it all is that we want to pass those stories down to the next generation. So we, you know, we don't know the census records we know had flaws in them, but they, they do put you on the track, and then, once you get past that, you have to look for another set of records to kind of verify what you found in the census. But the whole history, to me, is so much richer than what you'd ever find in any written document. Right. And, you know, you hear storytelling, you hear the word, the art of storytelling. Is there something magical about telling a story as opposed to writing an article for a genealogy journal? Well, what I found, and again, this is from trial and error, um, and, and when you mentioned I've been doing this for 40 years, I keep thinking about, I must have been two years old when I started this. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I find that when we do our research and we find that when we look at the stories themselves, you, you write a narrative. You, we actually, actually, you build a script. You write from a script. And from that script, you, you're putting in all those details that genealogists always have, like, you know, birth, year, and, and death, and, and, you know, baptismal records, those dates. But then you, you build a narrative around that. So you, you don't want to just say, you know, so-and-so was born such and such a day, and, and, and then, of course, you know, you, you go into that same mode that we always do as genealogists. You want to have a more of a narrative approach to it where you actually are telling Imagine, again, this is when you do your research and you realize that, you know, there was something major that happened in that community. 
And so you plug that into there. And then you might say, well, there was something major that happened worldwide or there was something that happened in the U.S. or whatever, but you plug those pieces in, and then now you're building that narrative, and then you, you look for that flow. And once you get that flow, and, again, it gets back to our journalism class 101. Mr. Thompson was my, my teacher, and he, he, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Those are the, if you can answer those, then you have a story. Right, and you have a story. And so you're saying don't just put in just the kind of basics, but but fill it in. Fill that's it in right. with all that's the right. other stuff that's going on in in your environment and in the the exactly. life of the person that you're writing about. Okay, right. well, I and, think... And, you know, like you mentioned before, you know, if you have, you got neighbors, you know, a lot of times the, the neighbors played a part in, in that family um, just because they were close friends and that type of stuff. You can always say, well, Bob was living next door and Joe was on the other side and we used to play together as kids, and this is what they've told you. And so you incorporate that all in the service, and then you put it in that time frame. But when you tell a story, you don't always have to start in chronological order where you say this is the birth year and you're walking. That's, that, that becomes a very boring story. So you may start off with, you know, I joined the military in 1852 or whatever it may have been, and then you start from there and work your way back into or go forward, and then always you can go back to the birth year. So, you know, that's the fun part about it. When you build a storyboard, you can kind of, you know, move it around as you please, and that's what makes such a good story. Now, when you say storyboard, I don't know if everyone understands. I mean, just what is a storyboard? Um, okay, a storyboard is – and. You know, there's, there's, of course, there's software that, that you can buy um, just for doing a storyboard, but I use something that I already have, and I use Keynote. I'm on a Macintosh with a lot of people on PowerPoint on the PC. And basically what I do, I build slides of the images of the information I want to tell. And then as I build the slides in the storyboard, I move these slides around and say, okay, I want to start here. Um, and I may have three versions of that story when I'm all said and done. And I say, okay, let me see which one has the better feel with the music and the audio and that. So you can use tools that probably everybody has, and if you don't even have PowerPoint or Keynote, you can even do it in Word. I mean, it's it's not a big deal, uh, but it's so nice to be able to visually see your story on the screen first as opposed to just writing the text and say, okay, you read that, okay, that's quite not quite what I want. But when you tie in the visuals with it, and then, of course, when you put the music and the audio and the narration, all that mixed together, that's when you have your multimedia. Okay, Mr. Film Director. So tell (laughs) us. (laughs) You're kind of telling me, you know, how to take my story now. Okay, I have Keynote, which I love working with Keynote. And I do mm-hmm. my who, what, when, and where, and then I start mm-hmm. adding the other stuff to go with my who, what, when, and where. And I have what a story to make into a film. That's Is that you what start. you're telling me? That's what I'm okay. telling you. That's that's what you start. You don't have to, you know. Again, as you finish that, and it could be you can consider that a, a slide presentation. Some people say that, but once you finish it, then you can take it to the next level and put it to film. And then that's when you start getting B-roll and, you know, you may have to buy some of the, you know, images that you see or something that actually helps tell the story. You have to probably go out and purchase those uh, unless you find it in public domain. But the starting point is 
is, you know, building a PowerPoint presentation, a keynote presentation, and, and just play with it and see what, how it comes out and get the feel of it. And then, now, and then, of course, I mean, you can just do the narration yourself, you know, sit there and just narrate what you're saying, and, and it works well. And and what kind of time uh, when you when you're saying put this together? What makes a good film? Uh, how how much time? Fifteen minutes, seven minutes, five minutes? Just kind of tell us what you're talking about. Okay, well, let's say uh, I know most people look at CBS Sunday Morning News, and uh-huh. they will give you a story from start to finish. And if you ever pay attention to it now, it'd be the who, what, when, where, and how. They will give you that in seven minutes or less. Believe it or not, those episodes are not long at all. They're only seven minutes, and they've shown you some still images. They've shown you some narration. They've shown you some, some video. Um, they may have gotten creative with the text. But a seven minute is a good place to start. So just think if you had seven minutes of a chapter of a person's life and you wanted to do that seven minutes and turn it into a what they would consider a full-length documentary of 56 minutes that would be on PBS, then you just need eight chapters. Okay. Seven <laughs> minutes. Okay, yeah, I can seven do minutes this is in a good number. seven minutes. Okay. That's right. And you'd be surprised how long seven minutes is when you're looking at TV. Uh, but let's think about it, a commercial. They can sell your product in a commercial in 30 seconds or 60 That's seconds. That's right. That's right. And a lot has happened. If you remember, the um, United Airlines used to do, um, and they used to play it to the Rhapsody and Blues music, and they would always have a story they told in their commercial, and that in 30 seconds, they had some of the best commercials going. And of course, I guess as time went on, new management came in and said, "Oh, we're not going to do that anymore." But they had they had one that actually gave a guy his whole life as a child, all the way up. It was an animated one. From a, as a child, they moved all the way up into his retirement years. And then they say, you, you need to fly. And then, of course, they go into their music and that type of stuff. But those were excellent. They were storytelling commercials. And I don't know if you remember the Super Bowl commercial, the one with Paul Harvey that talked about the, the farmer. He did one on the farmer. Now, that, that had been done. He did that years ago because he, he's deceased now. But they used it for the Don Ram commercial, the truck. But the story, he's one of, he was one of the best storytellers. I, when I traveled, I always looked for, he was on syndicated radio, and I was always listening for, and it was called The Rest of the Story. So he'll give you all the bits and pieces, and then he'll lay the, the final part on you. It was the rest of the story. So, right. Um, <laughs> well, this, this really kind of gives the, the genealogist another way of looking at how to present the information that they're gathering so that others will even be interested in hearing what you're talking about. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, you, again, you can almost look at what it would take. If you sat there and say, okay, but I really look at this, and you, you, when you start evaluating what you've done, and, of course, you can always have a second or third person to take a look at it and say, oh, okay, that, I like that. That works well for me. Uh, but, again, if you answer those five, the who, what, when, where, and then how, um, and how don't always pop in, but, you know, if you can throw a howl in there, then you're doing good. Um, but you'll always find the story is actually in the why. Why did they do that, whatever it may have been? Oh, okay, yes. Why did they do that? 
And then you start answering it in a lot of different ways based on the information that you've obtained. That's right. You know, why did your people or your family move to another state? You know, there was a reason why they did that. And so when you're looking for the why, then once you find that why, then you, you can actually work from there and build your story from the why. The why is the most important piece of it all. Okay, everybody, so you're hearing this. Now, genealogy, Jenison, this is really good, especially for the younger generations. Well, they've already figured it out. I mean, they're on there creating videos uh, on a little bit of everything. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, that's my, my piece, too, with building uh, doing multimedia presentations. If we want to reach that next generation, you're not going to hand them a book and expect them to read it because, you know, people don't read anymore. Like we used to, you know, we were coming up, you know, it was an honor to get that little plaque or whatever you got from the library to say that you read X amount of books during the summer. But that's, you know, that's not how it works anymore. I like to see visuals and I like to see it on the big screen. And, and so to tell your family story in a multimedia presentation, you'd be surprised how you would have a captive audience to actually, and, and they'll tell you, wow, that was, that was pretty good. And hopefully you'll pick one or two of them up who say, you know, I would love to do that for the next family reunion or whatever the case may be. Right. And we have a comment coming out from Terry, Terry Smith saying, Hurricane Katrina will be the catalyst for future genealogists, the diaspora out of New Orleans. Can you imagine the stories that can be told? That's right. Jeez. That's right. Well, you, when we grew up with Betsy, Hurricane Betsy, you know, as that's kids, right. we that's, still can recall right. what happened at Hurricane Betsy. You know, we went to had to stand in line and have a shot and all this, and you know, the food truck came. You had to go. You know, so those stories stay with you a lifetime. And well, as a grandparent, and and I have always seen and found that most of the great stories, family stories, come from the grandparent, more so the grandmother than the grandfather. And that's just have been the trend from all the research and all of the interviews that I've done, the grandmother is the, I want to say, the carrier of the family story. Right, yes. I mean, I know that's certainly where I I received a lot of my stories from my grandmother. And so it is something for folks to think about. But don't forget Grandpa, because Grandpa probably no, no. had his stories too. But you're right. You, you're getting those stories from somewhere. Now, Angela is saying that she's seen uh, that at reunions. If you remember to tell the story and keep it flowing, the audience is captured. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, and, and they, you know, then the tears start flowing. And, and you know, it depends if, if you created emotional peace where, you know, there's someone who has passed on and, and those memories hit them right then and there and say, wow, you know, and it's all the good memories. And so, and, and you hear Ken Burns say that, you know, he, he puts emotions in his film. He knows people going to cry. And he said he cries himself, you know. So it's one of those things that as you build the momentum and you build that story, um, it, it's going to touch a lot of people's hearts. And, and that's, you know, that's part of the great part of storytelling. That's what you love to do, you know. And, you know, I mean, I sat here and, and did editing in the middle of the night and said, oh, wow, that's a, that's a special piece. And, it's, it, you know, it might have been a, a grandmother or a grandfather. And, and you, it's a, it, and Ms. Bush, even when we talk about Ms. Bush, the same thing. You know, you're just well up because of the fact that you remember the great times that you had with these people. 
That's right. And those are the those are the things that you need to into in in telling this story. Talk about the great times and the funny times. You even find that happening at at funerals, at the at the repast, and the yeah. family members are together <laughs> and they start telling the funny things that happen and they start that the memories. So I guess that's where you really should have the camera rolling. Because right. people That's are right. talking about that. Yes. You know, Angela is saying that she's asked people to talk about Uncle Cephas. And if anyone has heard Angela talk about Uncle Cephas, I think we know who Uncle Cephas is. But it's <laughs> something, you know, we talk just like I talk about Peter Clark. You know, everybody mm-hmm. knows I, I would hope or one day we'll know all about Peter Clark and that homestead land. But mm-hmm. it is something that we just need to, to work on. Uh, Angela has a comment. Telling the story is the most important thing that we do with the data that we find. Uh, and, right. and that is our charge as a genealogist to to yeah. tell that story in such a way that people will say, okay, it's not going with you in the grave and it's not stuck somewhere in the cloud in your data, but nobody <laughs> knows what it means. I mean, I know even my own daughter will tell me, write another story. She doesn't want to hear about the records I found. She wants to hear about the story that came from the records that I found. That's, so, right. That's right. Because, you know, yes. our, our task as genealogists is to interpret those records so others can understand. Yes, yes. That, that, I'm, I'm really glad that you said that. Uh, Susan is saying that many people don't know about family mysteries. And she never would have thought of the story about a great uncle who married Hattie McDaniel. Wow. Wow, Susan, mm, wow. you need to come okay. and tell us about that. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's a story. But, That's a great story. But, you know, as you said, our task is to interpret the data. That's right. So that That's others right. can can know it. Well, Leonard, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back now, and we're going to talk about a story uh, and, and say a lot more about how you created a documentary on Miss Bush. So we're going to take a quick break and come right back. Well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. 
All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Leonard Smith talk about telling our stories. And so, Leonard, let's take this to the next level now, because as a film director, you had an opportunity to do something great. And I don't know how many people even think about the teachers that have taught them and then decide, wait a minute, this teacher had an impact on my life. Maybe I should find out more about that teacher. So when did you decide to create a, a documentary on Miss Yvonne Bush? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Um, in one of your slides that you have that, that's, that's flashing, um, there's a picture of me standing next to Miss Bush, and I have a book in my hand that was written by Dr. Al Kennedy, and he had done the research on Miss Yvonne Bush because, you know, as a student, we didn't know Miss Bush was a child prodigy. We didn't know she had traveled the country as a child playing with the National Sweethearts of Rhythm and, and, and a Rays of Rhythm. We didn't know any of that, and she was a modest person. She didn't tell us that, but we did know that she could play every instrument that was in the band and then some. So it was always an honor to hear her play, uh, and she, she really loved trumpet, but she became, a, I guess, a main instrument in college was a trombone, but she was always in the brass section. So Carver, we always had a tight brass section because that was her instrument. And so she would, you know, if you couldn't play your part, she would take your instrument from you and, and, and had her own mouthpiece and, and play the part and give your horn back, like cutting your head is what we used to say back in the day. But that picture showed me um, there was a presentation that um, Dr. Al Kennedy had, I think it was at Booker T. Washington, and he had wrote this book on Ms. Bush, and I'm like, Ms. Bush, you didn't? and I brought Ms. Bush to the event, and I said, Ms. Bush, you never told us any of this, and she just smiled. And so I'm saying to myself, this guy, and I had never done a full-length documentary before at that time, and I said, oh, this has got to be a documentary on her life. And and the great thing about it, I was able to do it when she was still alive. And so, but yes. you know, as I read the book and I saw these these images, and I, you know, looked at all the people who she had, you know, I didn't know she had, you know, taught James Rivers and Sugar Bar Crawford, all these big names in New Orleans, all of the rock and roll folks that came out in New Orleans, they were former students of hers. And so it was such a great story. I said, okay, I got to tell this story. And and again, I didn't have the the equipment of know-how because I had always done those small, you know, 10, 15-minute documentaries, seven minutes, like I mentioned before. So that was my first tackle at a 56-minute because I was actually gearing it up to be on PBS. And so um, had a great time, and, and that's what came of it, um, the, the the story of Mr. Vaughn Bush. Wow. Now, you have to tell us just what kind of research did you have to do to put this documentary together? Okay. Well, you know, when you look at all these movies on TV and that type of stuff, you always hear them talking about they read this script. They read this script from somewhere. Well, Al Kennedy's book was my script. So I already the script was already done. He had done most of the research. Now, there were some things that he mentioned in the book, and I said, okay, I have to really find out more about that. And so 
my sister and I, Terry, went to Piney Woods, where she went to school at. And, and where's I Piney Woods? Piney Woods, Mississippi. And okay. it's the middle of nowhere. And, and I say, you know, I want to feel what it was like for her to be at this school. Um, and it was in the middle of nowhere, you know. I mean, we looked like we drove forever to get there. And we got there, and it was, you know, and when I'm telling the story, I always like to basically put myself in the place where that person may have been. So even if I'm doing something on my ancestors or I'm doing something for an organization, I always like to go to those places where they were so I can get that feel. There's a feeling that you get when you're actually looking for those elements. And so when we went to Piney Woods, Terry and I went to Piney Woods, and we spent the whole day there, and it was amazing. They had the original piano that, that Professor Jones had purchased, and, and they had a little museum for his stuff, and they had a lot of photographs. One of the photographs that I found was when um, – Earl Father Hines had come to the school, and, you know, he played with the orchestra and that type stuff, but that was big doing because, you know, he was like one of the best, the biggest names in jazz, jazz pianists at the time. So when he came to the school, um, you know, all of that information was there. They had photographs of him with, you know, promotional-type photographs because they actually backed him up on, on a couple of events, and I think they even actually played, uh, you know, like the – well, he was the headliner, so they would actually, you know, play before him. And so Miss Bush was in those bands, and she, he actually, his wife and Father Hines actually wanted to adopt Miss Bush, and they talked to Miss Bush's parents, and in the documentary that came out because that was something that Al Kennedy had done the research on because he, he sat and interviewed Miss Bush multiple times. I got a chance to sit down and talk to her as well. And so with his, what he had done with the research and then me being able to come back and say, you know, oh, well, by the way, I remember, because I'm talking as a student, this is what I remember. And so that was what helped me tell the story even better because, I, you know, I lived it with her. Oh, yes. And and we definitely know the stories of Miss Bush. Uh, <laughs> I'll just share with everyone. She was also my teacher. <laughs> Actually, right. my teacher before your teacher, right, Leonard? That's right. Yeah, I was I was a baby. I was a baby ram uh, by the time you had there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. We won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was but, amazing with Ms. Bush that you know that she was one of those who it wasn't just about the music. You know, I mean, if you could play music, that was fine. But it was about you being a a decent person, and whatever it took for her to get you on the right track. Because I've seen some guys who come in there, and you know, she had to put them straight, but she did. And everybody respected Miss Bush. And she, you know, she was a small in stature. She was, I don't know if she was 5'2", maybe, um, give or take. But, you know, everybody respected her. And it didn't matter, you know, I mean, it could be young, old. Everybody respected what and Miss Bush say something, you did it. And you didn't even hesitate to, to do anything else but that. Right, and now there's a question coming out that wonder what you would think of a narrative based upon what one is able to discern by sheer deduction. For instance, this is a person saying that her grandmother never had photos of her dad, and but she believes they were dark-skinned. Now, Lucy, I'm not sure what you're talking about here, but... You know, tying this into the story with Miss Bush, you had a chance to talk to Miss Bush. You had a chance to look at 
L. Kennedy's book. And did she then confirm everything or had to approve what you were going to do or you just started doing it? Well, of course, being a student Ms. Bush, I made sure she confirmed everything I did. I did not Okay. I did not want Ms. Bush mad at me for whatever reason. So in in the process of doing the documentary and I actually showed we had a jam session in her honor and a lot of the jazz greats from the city came around and I'll give you an example, like there was James Rivers who had done a couple of soundtracks, movie soundtracks for Clint Eastwood movies, you know. Um, you had also Harlan Raleigh who's, who's traveled the world with Wynton Marcellus and now he's doing his own thing. Um, we, we had uh, people who had played with Ray Charles. Everybody, you can Joe Tetch, you name all the big names coming out in Fast Domino. All her students had played with these, you know, these greats in some form or fashion. And some of them had their own bands in their, in their own rights. So Sugar Bar Crawford, I Thought I Thought, the song that everybody covered, was one of her students at Booker T. And so, you know, it was, when you started putting all those pieces together, and then I, you know, I started, I said, well, Ms. Bush, what about, and she would tell me some things that, of course, I didn't put in the documentary, because they, they feel funny to me, because I remember the conversation. Um, but Ms. Bush was one of those people that, that did not bite her tongue when she, had to tell you something she told you, and she was straight up with it, and that's what I loved about it as well. And just right. to give you an example, we had um, – she used to record all our band concerts, and for years she recorded them from 1960 up until 1980s. And so I inquired when I was interviewing Ms. Bush, what happened to all those recordings you had uh, of our concerts? She said they're in the attic. Now, if anybody's familiar with New Orleans in the attic and it's been in there for 20, 30 years, you wouldn't think you'd get anything off it. But believe it or not, I was able to digitize it. It's not the best quality because of where I was kept, but I was able to actually record our band and choir concerts and digitize them, and actually I have those, those sounds right now. Oh, now that's great. And they were not uh, affected at all by Hurricane Katrina? No, well, they were not at it. So this was before they, they after in- Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, but this was before um, I had access to this bush. I would love to put some of the audio from our concerts in the documentary. And she said, well, they're in the attic. I'll see if I can get my nephew to come over. And, get, and he came over and got him and Ms. Bush didn't let any and everybody take stuff like that. You know, you know how older folks are about, oh, no, you can't have that. You can watch it here, but you can't take it. She actually let me take these precious recordings that she had saved for all those years, and I was able to digitize them. Um, and then the story about the Katrina piece, in my office, we, of course, my house had eight feet of water and an eight-foot ceiling house. And I had seven containers, the Rubbermaid containers, and I had film footage from all of the games and and high school games and basketball, you name it, and also family footage and that type. There was one container that did not get damaged. It floated in the water because they had a watermark on it. And that was all of the documentation that I had and also the video, the interviews and all that I had done for Ms. Bush documentary. So in the intro of the documentary, I show that and, and say that, you know, I had seven containers of film and pictures. This is the only one that survived Hurricane Katrina. So wow. I was destined to do the documentary. 
<laughs> you definitely were. Well, we have a question uh, from Michelle, and she wants to know, as we write these stories or even film these stories, is it advisable to share what could be considered possibly embarrassing stories while they're living but were funny and a part of their life story? Well, when I interviewed a lot of folks, um, and, and of course, Ms. Bush saw it afterwards, and, and she laughed herself on some of them. Um, there's one piece where, and, and Bernice, you know, and Sullivan mentioned, um, you know, she gave some of the, the weirdest grades. You know, you would have to, you would get a zero this semester. You get a half a zero, and she tell you to come back to the next semester and get the other half. You know, and everybody, you know, every time I showed that, that was kind of like the highlight of the film because everybody just thought that was so funny, you know. But, and she laughed at it herself. She said, I didn't do that. She said, it might have been a 20, but it wasn't a zero, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, we laughed <laughs> at it even after we saw the documentary together. And so um, she, you know, I always ask in the interviews, after we finish all the questions, I always ask, okay, give me your best Miss Bush story. And we all had a best Miss Bush story. That was the funny part about it. And some of them made the, the cut, and some of them didn't. But, you know, everyone who I interviewed, and I must have interviewed probably 20, maybe 20 or so people, everybody had a Miss Bush story. That's right. And I know if you put a group of her former students together now, they would all have a Miss <laughs> Bush story. I think you can even continue the story. Now, there was a question right. about when did Miss Bush pass away? Oh, okay. Recently, probably, the, what was that, three years ago? Is it three? About three I'm, I'm kind of mm-hmm. losing it. Yeah, about three years ago, I think it is. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Now, back I, to the. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. Back to this whole thing about, well, the, the truth. I mean, just what do you put in there? And you, you mentioned some of the stories made the cut and some of the stories didn't make the cut. But there's a comment from Genealogy Jen, and she's saying sometimes the truth isn't what we think it is. So when you're telling the story, you're controlling the narrative. So it's our responsibility as the storyteller to tell the truth, but in a way that can help. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, There were some things that she probably would have said, well, you know, you probably don't need to put that in there. And, and, but again, once I got her seal of approval, I was fine with whatever I had done. Um, but I think the, the biggest piece that, and again, now it's a little different, but, you know, we used to get the paddle. You know, if, if you, you stepped out of line and you did something you weren't supposed to do, you got the paddle. Of course, now that was people, a lot of people would frown on that now. But, you know, when, you, when you're talking about a band that had well over 120 pieces, then you had the majorettes and, and all the other pieces, here's this lady who's, you know, five-twin statue or shorter is responsible for 150 or so kids at a football game or a Mardi Gras parade or whatever. And so you're going to have stories that come out, and you, and it was always those things that I understand that there are some things I could have said that, oh, Ms. Bush did this and did that. But out of respect, I also make sure I put in what I feel is a good story. And, you know, even in your family tree, there are stories that the older folks didn't even talk about it around you. 
And so as time go on, you remember those stories, but those are not things that go out to the public. And as a, as a filmmaker, you have that option. You know, you, you have complete control over that. But I'd rather not go that approach only because of the fact that there were so many other great stories. I could leave a whole bunch out, and you would never know that they weren't in there. That's, That's right. right. Now, how, now long how long is, is this, uh, your film? Your film? This Bush documentary is 56 minutes long. Uh, as I say, I, I use the format that PBS has, um, and so 56 minutes is a good number. And remember, get back to what I mentioned about seven minutes. Seven minutes is a golden number when you're doing a documentary because you can take one seven minutes um, and build chapters. So one chapter could be seven minutes. If you really sit down and look at Ms. Bush's documentary, each one of the chapters are probably about seven minutes long. I might have split two of them. It might have been three and a half minutes. But for the most part, they're seven minutes long. So I have eight chapters. And so that makes it so much easier, you know, to, to actually um, control your story, being able to remove, move things around like you want to with your storyboard and that type stuff. And, and again, you know, everyone has, you know, Basically, about seven, eight, chap- eight chapters in their, in their life. If you if you count, you know, toddler years and adolescent years, and you, when you break it up like that, it's about about eight generate eight years of, of you know if you if you live to be seventy eight or something like that. So that's what makes it so easy. You just do the math and say, okay, this person lived to be seventy eight, then I can break their years up into seven minutes. Right. And, you know, Al is putting, um, A. Kennedy has just uh, put in the chat room that Miss Yvonne Bush died February 28, 2014, at a family member's West Wego home, and she was 84 years old. This is answering the question that was asked earlier. But Leonard. Dr. Kennedy, who wrote wrote the book. Yes, good to see you, Dr. Kennedy, in the chat room. Well, uh, Leonard, how mm-hmm. was Miss Bush's reaction to the film when she had a chance to sit there and watch it? Well, she got emotional, um, which which is good, you know. And it was it was a happy happiness about her when she saw it, and she did not come to the. Um, we had a jam session I mentioned earlier at Donna. She didn't come to that. She wanted to come, but, you know, she was having little health, health issues at the time. And so, you know, everybody came. This was going to be in this book. Now, these are guys who well, even older than me. They were in their 70s, and they're still looking for Miss Bush, their teacher, and still, you know, my teacher. We all, you know, we all were like that about Miss Bush, you know. And so um, she – she got a little emotional about it. She was, she was, you know, she was proud. She and she kept saying, "Oh, look, my Leonard. Of all, who would think Leonard would have done this? Because you know, I wasn't her best student. You know, um, you know, I was a trumpet player. I, I, I started. And here's one of my stories: is that I started um, <laughs> the first piece of music she put in front of us because we had to sight read music. And the first piece of music she put in front of me was Souls and Stripes Forever." And I looked at, and I was a trumpet player. I saw notes on there I had never seen before in my life, you know. And so I was like, okay, I can't read this. And, of course, I'm trying to fake. I'm trying to listen to the other players and hear what they're playing. But, you know, we got first, second, third, and fourth trumpets. 
And um, so I'm trying to make the band because back then you didn't just walk in and say, I want to be in the band. You, you know, you had to make the band. So for the first week, I ended up being the color guard. And I, I was determined to be in that band because, you know, I grew up in the neighborhood and I would hear they practicing and, and, and you know, it was always any pop tune that was out, they cover played it. And, you know, we also played the classics and all that stuff as well. You know, when I hear the uh, the theme from the Long Ranger, she taught me that that's not the theme for the Long Ranger, that's William Tell Overture. Those are the things that I instilled in me that I still to this day have appreciation for great music because of her. And so... She was one of those teachers that took the time and made you understand and help you understand, you know, what theory was about, you know, why it was important to know these things, you know, and, and how, why it was so important to be able to sight read music. And so, you know, as she watched the documentary and people, you know, making comments about her, I saw a little teardrop, you know, and that type of stuff, but she, you know, it, she loved it. She loved it, and she was just so happy that, you know, I, I was able to do that. And, Leonard, you know, you're talking about Miss Bush, but when when I hear the discussion about her, I think about the impact she had on the New Orleans community and the impact that it, she would have on any genealogist or any person in that neighborhood doing their family story. Everyone will remember the band. Everyone will remember seeing her walk on the field or when she put her hands up for the concert band, ready to start that music. She did have an impact, but she was one, also one of those teachers that cared. That's right. That's right. You know, you, you run across, you know, and, and this, these are the old teachers, the old educators that we all, I, I'm more sure the most people on this call are in, in my age group. And, you know, we ran across these types of teachers then, and there's some of them still left, um, but not as many as they had before that had the child's interest at heart. And, it, and again, it didn't matter what they taught. They just had your interest. They had your back, as we would say it now, you know. And, and so Ms. Bush was one of those teachers that, you know, whatever you had uh, uh, concerned you, you know, it, it was something that she would address, and, and she may pull you on the side, son, let me talk to you, or something like that. And so... But if you think about a band director, you spend so much time with them, you know, because, you know, you, sometimes you practice in the morning, then you practice in the evening, and then you had a class, a music class, and then you had a football game on a weekend, or you might have a concert or, or something like that. So they spent more time with you than any other teacher that you may have had in school. And so you learn, you know, what they like, and, what, and she, she learned what you didn't like, and, you know, but it was always a – Mutual understanding that, you know, Ms. Bush was looking out for all of us. And, and there's so many great stories. And, and you know, and when you see the documentary and you, and you hear all of the, the testimonies from, and, and she taught at so many different schools, but the main schools was Booker T. Washington and Joseph S. Clark and George Washington Culver. And, and she retired from George Washington Culver. But um, the stories were just, you know, just they they mind boggling. The stories that you hear people talk about to this day and I could I could be with any student of Miss Bush and they can say, Miss Bush was one of the best things that ever happened. Sugar Bar Crawford, Miss Bush, if it wasn't for her, he said, I would not have had the musical career that I had. But it was because of Miss Bush. James Rivers will tell you the same thing. You know, and, and so you know, James Rivers played behind Gladys Knight and you know, I mean you know, he again. I, I, Bird was one of the documentaries that he did for Clint Eastwood. The soundtrack, 
bridge over Madison County, you know, the big stuff. And so it, it was one of those things that, as you talked about Ms. Bush, even people who didn't go to any schools that she was at, everybody knew Ms. Bush in the whole city because everybody, to this day, she's still a legend among band directors in the city of New Orleans. And so how can the listeners get to see this this documentary? Well, you can go to, let's see, ls3studios.com. I think I have a link for it there. Um, let's see. And um, that's, that's my main website. And I, if it's not there, I can put one up, but I'm more than sure that it is there now. Um, or you can actually Google, just Google um, that title, um, and it should come up in Vimeo, because that's where, that's where it's at, on Vimeo well, platform. Well, I want you to know that Dr. Kennedy said that many more people have viewed your uh, video than read his book. And he said that you created a powerful documentary and shared the story of Miss Bush very effectively. Well, you know, it was, you know, having a great scriptwriter, that's all you'd ask for, you know, because otherwise I had to, you know, have done that myself. And, you know, he had done so much great research on her life story and other music musicians that were in the classroom as well. And hence the title. But, you know, Ms. Bush just stood out among everybody because of the fact that, you know, I guess with all the schools that she was at, you know, those were all the powerhouse bands at that time. And so, you know, we, we, we competed against any and everybody that was in the city. You know, we, we, we love competition. She always said, don't, don't step away from competition. You know, you always, but you got to play, got to be at your best. And we were always at our best. And we look sharp and we, and we sound sharp. We, we just, and I'm not... Yeah, I'm bragging because that's what we were. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with bragging. There's not so yeah. Leonard, just uh so what are you working on now? Well, um Miss Bush documentary came out in two thousand seven, believe it or not. And so um the continuation of that was supposed to be one of the community. And so started working on that and then got sidetracked, but then we do have um, Culver is in the desire community. And so the, the documentary that I'm in production with right now is called A Place Called Desire. And, of course, part of the story of desire is Culver and the band and Miss Bush. She'll be in that, that as well. Um, but it's one of those documentaries about the community. And I'm starting from the beginning of the community where they, it became populated up into current times where it is now. And, of course, this community was impacted by Hurricane Betsy, Hurricane Katrina. The, um, there's a super fun, uh, a super, um, super fun site there. Um, and there's also, there was an incident with the, and this is what most people know about it, they had an incident with the Panthers in the police department uh, back in the 70s. And so, I'm writing all of the good that came out of that community because a lot of folks, you know, the public, other than the people who live in that community, don't realize the great things that came out of that community. So with that, I've decided to write the, the good things. To give you some examples of who come out of that community, we had uh, Marsha Falk, the football player, um, is from Culver. 
Um, we have Ono Donald, who's the current CEO of Carnival Cruise Line, is from the design community. Uh, Pam Giles, who was who won a silver medal in the Olympics back in the seventies, who was the fastest woman in the world at one time. Uh, we have a, a score of doctors, MDs, PhDs, educators, engineers, and you know this was a community that was always kind of left behind. Everybody turned to him when there was issues that came up in desire. And so in spite of all of that, we still had people who actually survived it and moved on to bigger and better things and have made influences all over the world. And it's a community story. And, you know, thinking of you as a genealogist, what kind of processes have you gone through just to gather information about this community? Well, of course, you always do your research first. Um, and and the, the great thing about even with this Bush documentary and this documentary, I lived it. You know, my family moved there in 1964, um, but my grandmother and grandfather and cousins had moved there in 1955, and so they lived around the corner from us. And so what was amazing with that is that we kind of knew the community and had a lot of my family units within that community. And so we grew up in Desire. Um, Desire started probably in 1945. It was the first, one of the first communities in the country, actually, to um, sell homes to returning African-American veterans from World War II. And so that was the original core that was there. And as time went on, they ended up building the largest, one of the largest development, uh, housing developments in the country, the Desire Project. And so those stories that came out of the project, you know, because, you know, there was, it was a community that, you know, everybody knew everybody. And, we, you know, a lot of walking went on all hours of the night, you know. And so it was one of those communities where you had um, major events where you would actually go to Culver. Culver had a great auditorium. You know, they had a, a community center that was in the heart of the, the project where everybody learned how to uh, play piano or dance or whatever, it, karate, basketball, you name it, we had it there. So it was a close-knit community. And then, of course, when the 80s came along with the drug epidemic and, and all that, then that whole scene changed. And that's what really was the downfall. And then on top of it came the, the, the finding that a lot of the land was contaminated um, as a super fun site, and so EPA got involved, and there was a major lawsuit. And with the lawsuit, um, people end up getting pennies on a dollar, as opposed to really being, you know, and, you know, and it's, it's a high case of cancer in that community. So um, that's still something that's being fought to this day because there's still people living on a toxic waste dump. And so uh, if you Google that, it's all over. You know, you, you find many articles about it. And then now, just recently, Carver just was rebuilt since Katrina. And then you have a technical college um, that's run by Delgado that's right around the corner. And then there's also another Desire Street Ministries actually rebuilt their school there as well. So there's movement in the community, but there's still an issue with the landfill and everybody's still turning their head and not saying what we're going to do with this. And, and so that's part of the story as well. 
Well, one of the things when you when you talk about telling the story of this community, you have children growing up in this community and they don't know this story. And I think there are many communities around the United States that started off the way mm-hmm. you describe this community and they turn into a, a, a another type of community. But just think of what's going to happen when the children in this community hear that story. I mean, there is a story of pride, and everybody did know everybody, and then mm-hmm. something happened. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we, we can go with all the stats and say that, you know, there was always you know, uh, both parents was in the house in the 60s, the 70s, or the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. And then, of course, things changed as far as what government looked at and say, well, no, you know, you're making too much money, so the male can't be in the household. You know, it was so many variations that happened there. And so now you had a community that had more of a double parents there, and then all of a sudden now it's just a single parent. And and so, of course, that's going to make the whole dynamics of the community change. And that's what happened a lot with desire. Right. That is what's happening. So just to, to kind of close out, because we started off by talking about telling your story and creating a documentary, how, what can you do kind of to help others learn what you know how to do? Okay. I'm actually, Working on a course, an online course called, and it's at ls3learningacademy.com. And this is going to be an online course to actually walk a person from their um, finding their, their, a great story in their tree to actually distribution, so from, from start to finish. And, and the, the goal of this is to get more stories out there, you know, because so it gets back to my mission to educate entertain and inspire others to tell their family stories. And so that's the mission of LS3 Studios, and that's what, you know, I decided that's the best way to do it is to teach others what I do. And, I again, I, I pride myself on breaking it down. It's not real technical. I, I kind of stay away from the technical stuff because, you know, so many people are afraid of even to a computer to this day. And so I break it down into every, you know, layman's terms and, you know, this is what you do. You press this button and that type. So uh, I just did a workshop um, last Saturday and had some attendings there, and, and they enjoyed themselves. Everybody enjoyed the flow and that type. And so we're going to re-meet again in October, on October the 8th. And the task that I had them do is find one person in their tree in five generations, so that's counting themselves, that's 63 chances they have to find one person that they can find a great story to tell about. And so, you be, it's, it, and again, it has to be fun. And so when people, you know, really get excited and get, you know, it's fun that they're doing this. And, you know, we went online when we were in the workshop and everybody was all excited about, oh, wait, look, look what I found, look what I found. And I said, okay, have you ever done any research in the courthouse? I've never been in the courthouse. And it, it's just amazing. I had uh, one person came in. And I, I inquired, I said, well, are you, you have a flight to catch when you leave here? Because she had this big suitcase. She said, no, you say to bring all of your research and your photographs. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. So um, but that's what I look for is that, you know, a lot of folks have a lot of stuff. And, again, it, it, it may be sitting in the corner and dark. But when you start gathering all what you've done over, you know, course of five, six, 20 years or whatever you've been doing your research, 
you find how many stories are in there that you could tell. And again, the goal is just to get a seven-minute documentary out of it. Now, again, if you have enough information, enough support information, then you can make it longer. But let's just start, make it simple. Let's do seven minutes. That's all you really need to start with. And seven minutes. And so you're going to teach the listeners yeah. how to put together a seven-minute video. That's right. And we're going to call it a documentary. We're not going to call it a video. A documentary. Okay, seven-minute documentary. That's right. And it's going to be from, you know, we're going to how to, how to search your tree to find those great stories. Um, and, and I challenge everyone, and, and even on the callers tonight, think about it this way. If you could interview just one of your ancestors, who would it be and why? That's a good question. Okay, so Chatters, tell me who would you interview. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see from the Chatters. Yeah, think about all the people who you found in your tree, and there's always that one person that could probably tell you those pieces that are missing. And so what you're looking for is that one person that you want to tell, you know, have interview that you were able to interview them. And I'm going to show you a way to interview those people, even though they're not here. And I'm not talking oh, about wow. talking to the dead and that type of stuff. But we'll talk. <laughs> that's all part of the course. They take the course, and you'll see how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Angela is saying she would interview Uncle Cephas, and Genealogy Jen is saying it's so hard to choose. And Angela is saying Amanda Young, and Terry is saying my maternal grandmother. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, and you'd be surprised. But you know what? It's funny because once you start doing more research and you're finding stuff, then all of a sudden you realize and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I may want to tell this person. I want to interview this person. So it may change in the process of your research. But it, it's just great to find that one person that can tell, like my, on my side is my paternal third-grade grandfather. He was old enough to, you know, he just missed the Civil War, but he, he knows everything else that went on on that side of the family. And he did so much. I mean, he went to Lake Charles and, and petitioned the archdiocese to actually start a, a Catholic church in school for the colored kids. He did the same thing in Thibodeau. And so I want to know what his mindset was. This was in the late 1800s. And then not only that, he was also um, a druggist in the late 1800s, you know, in Louisiana. So, you know, I would love to find out, you know, what school did he go to, first of all? That's always a good place to start. And so there are things that, you know, because Xavier University wasn't around at the time, you know. So he would be the key to my whole side. And, and I mentioned Cousin Isabel. That was Cousin Isabel's grandfather. And with the information that I know from Cousin Isabel and from what, if I could interview him, then, and, and since talking to her, it's just been unreal, the stuff that I have been able to find. Wow. Well, let me tell you something. I'm just going to read all of all the people they're going to interview. Okay, Leonard? So, <laughs> okay. Michelle. Michelle is saying, my dad's father. His family is such a mystery. Susan is saying, I've done that. My great-grandfather, Isaac Blakey, Civil War vet. Okay, Genealogy Jen, Alice Miller, uh, Lucy is saying a distant cousin who who was an amateur curator and donated her museum to 
Wilberforce oh. University. Wow. wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's a good story right there. That's mm-hmm. a good story. Lula Craig, mm-hmm. my great-great-grandmother. Uh, oh, wow. This is this. Hey, okay, everybody. We're going to see these <laughs> seven-minute documentaries, okay? <laughs> okay. So, Leonard, okay, now. How do we get? How do we register? Tell us the cost, because we need to get. We need to see some of these documentaries. These genealogists—they're right. out there. They're doing all of that research. But let's see those stories shared. Let's see those documentaries come out. Well, what I've done, actually, if you go to the site again, it's LS3 Learning Academy, and there's a blue button on the front page. You click there and actually register for the, the uh, upcoming courses that will be online. And I'm going to introduce them sometime in early October. And so you're just letting me know that you're interested. You know, you're not paying up front yet, but I'll be sending you emails eventually to say, okay, the cost is $97 for this group only, and it will go up to 297 once it's released. So... This is the time to get in, I, you know, because I want to have some stories that come out of it from the workshop. So I want people to say, yeah, well, I took this course, and this is what happened, and, you know, and, and I recommend it to other people and that type. So the early group, this group, your group online will get it for $97, but the course will go up to 297 Okay. And, of course, we have a vote here for Angela to come on the show and to talk about Uncle Cephas. And Angela, we want to see the documentary that you're going to put together on Uncle Cephas, okay? There you go. So, hey, (laughs) all right. (laughs) Well, Well, Leonard, this has been a lot of fun. You have given us so much information tonight about telling the story. And look, this is our challenge, right? I mean, we're gathering all this information. We're just breaking our necks. We're spending, you know, burning the midnight oil, looking <laughs> at documentation. We need to take it to the next level, right? That's right. And the next <laughs> level is a documentary. You know, we oh. it's time to get them, get all those pieces together and get them out of the suitcase or wherever you may have them, and let's tell them more stories. That's what we need to do. We need to get out. We need to tell our stories because understand this. If you give the pen to somebody else, then it ain't your story anymore. That's right. Okay, folks, you hear that? You give it to somebody else, it's not your story anymore. So, Leonard, thank you so much for coming in tonight and and sharing with us the, the wonderful tips on telling your story. And, look, everybody, just remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives. And don't forget, beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton-Raji on Friday. And remember, 
Angela, we want to hear about Uncle Cephas. So thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. And I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Leonard. Good night. Thanks for having me. Sure. Never the one.